Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, good morning. I just want to, in defense of receipts and higher-ups, I want to tell you that the parking lot across from one Ashburton place, that little parking lot, does not give receipts to all of you auditors. They just don't do it. I've asked for it. But I want to tell you how I got here. In 1981, which was my second job out of graduate school, I was working for what was called the Northeast Arc and director of advocacy. And I was on the top of the stairs next to the conference room where the auditors were. And I was told, don't talk to the auditors. Don't look at the auditors. Don't engage the auditors. And I was sort of stunned. And that was kind of you know, how we acted. Nobody talked to the auditors except the executive director. So I you know, went to uh, college and graduate school and did what everyone did in those days, which was you had to get a job, and then you had to, you had to get married, and you, know, you had to do everything at once. Because my uh, graduation speaker at college, and I went to a women's college, said you could do anything but be a sperm donor. And so I thought that meant that I had to do everything kind of at once. So I got married, had a baby. The first bit, my first child was born with Down syndrome and four heart defects. Had a master's degree in social work. And I could, tell, could do an entire speech just on that in terms of what was lacking when he was born. And I saw that both as a parent and both as a professional, although I really wasn't much of a professional. I had only actually worked for three months. I didn't like what I saw in terms of what the world offered for people with disabilities. So I did what I think I've been doing ever since, which was pivoting and challenging the system. I challenged a daycare center to take him in when he was 12 weeks old. I challenged a camp to take him when he was 2.9, because that's when typical kids went. And the battles continued. And those really, those battles are the kinds of opportunities that gave me the strength to be able to not only battle doctors who were giving me information in the way I didn't want to receive it. Or I used to write angry letters to everybody, that I've letters to every president when he was early on demanding a fair and just system. But I was able then actually to bring them into agencies where I was able to be, like many of you, be honored to be able to lead organizations um, across the spectrum of what makes us all great. But then I got to the point where I actually needed to be the person who talked to the auditors and select the auditors. And I came from this point of view that we weren't supposed to talk to them. And I realized that it was, the auditors were a different function than the CEO that had mentored me early. And I looked at aud my auditing firm as my report card, a different kind of report card, really letting me know financially we're on the right pace, we're involved with the right kind of innovation, we'd had the right systems. And so that's kind of how I got here to be on this stage. I'm honored that I followed last year Mary Lou Sutters. And um, thanks to, to our CFO, Cindy Gablick, who actually thought she was doing me a favor when she shared me, shared me the link to Mary Lou's talk last year. Just made me a little nervous. because. But then I realized, then she said, oh, but Martha Coakley was the year before. So those are really kind of high standards. And so I really want to thank AEF for um, letting me be here. And, um, I am going to talk about a few things. I'm going to talk about private equity, merger and acquisition, innovation, workforce philanthropy, because they're really all part of the pieces that make me think about how we are approaching things um, in our organization, but really in all organizations ought to be. And I hope I'm going to leave you challenged and maybe with more questions than you have. But one thing is, not, is a little different than last year. I am your friend. For those of you who were here last year, you'll understand that. If you weren't here, Mary Lou Sutter's told everybody, I am not your friend. We are not your friend. We are government. We work in partnership. But I am your friend. So there are lots of new trends in human services. And I try to look at what they should be. Um, and innovation should be predictable and regular. I mean, it should be something that you're doing all the time. 
The other thing that I, I want to thank AAF to do is this might be the only 25 or 35 minutes today that I will not be looking at my cell phone or um, checking my text messages. So I know the rest of you can do that, but you have me free and to, uh, at your disposal. So I think about where is where's the Ubers, where's the Peapods, where the Amazons, and how are we gonna how can we in our organizations do that? We talk about positive disruption in our organization a lot. It's counterintuitive and it's really difficult because we have people who are really used to doing the things that they've done the way they've been doing it. Back when I was started in human services, we actually allowed people to make mistakes. We didn't write them up and we didn't send them on their way. We actually usually promoted them eventually and they became CEOs. So even the small kinds of change that we might have wanted to experiment with kind of got thwarted somehow in the last, I think, 20 or 30 years where we don't look at young people and give them the same opportunities that we were given when we were young. And so I think we've moved a little bit backwards. Most of us were thrust into leadership positions and I think we did pretty well. And I'm always trying to figure out how do we can create a new human service you know, ecosystem. And one of the things that strikes me is how we are operating, we still operate in silos, in isolations. It results in redundancies, higher costs, and I am really sure that it results in a lower quality of services. You know, we see broad coalitions among our trade groups, but we don't really see our trade groups actually policing bad behavior. You know, I have never seen the kinds of uh, social or even economic ostracization that might occur in other industries from delivering bad services. We need to really think beyond mergers and acquisitions because that's sort of going to be a given, but there's certainly new ways that we can collaborate. It starts with culture. You've got to have a culture, and AAF talked about the culture of change that they have um, within their organization. And it's the soft stuff that the, it's the hard stuff. The technical problems we can solve. You know, we can get new IT software. We can get different technology. But it's kind of the soft people stuff that leads us to the, the areas that we want to be. So what are the kinds of actions that you can take that are little and some that are large? I don't know how many organizations have CEO parking spaces. You know, I don't have CEO parking spaces. That really tells you something. We don't have bathrooms that are marked staff bathrooms. I say to families who are looking for programs for their children, if you come into an agency that has a bathroom that says staff only, don't even consider it for your child because you know there are two standards of care and that's not a culture that I would want to embrace. Where's the CEO's office? Where are people's offices? We, when I got to um, the Northeast Arc, I realized after a couple weeks, it was the first time in almost over 20 years that I was not in a building where the people we support were also in the building. I was totally disconnected from the work that people are doing. So we did a reorganization and nobody who works for the Northeast Arc does not work in a building where there's not a program present. They are seeing the people that we work. So it means the people that are doing accounting or people that are doing development or people that are doing administrative works are also seeing the challenges that our staff have on a day-to-day -day basis when somebody might do something that's uh, very challenging, very difficult, and maybe um, interrupting with your workflow. You know, we talk about people that are making decisions as, you know, the executive team, the CEO, the C-suite people, but you know within your organizations there are people who are influencing behavior. And they are not given that position by you, but they've acquired it. You know, those are just some special talented people. Well, I've always brought those people together because they're, after a while, sometimes once they renamed my influences group the snitch group because they were afraid that I was really, I wasn't looking. I'm really looking to hear the truth about what's going on, really 
not filtered down many layers. I'm stunned with the lack of data that I have to make decisions. Are we using descriptive analytics rather than predictive analytics to talk about things that would be much, I think would be much more important. So what if I knew that 98% attendance rate in our DAYHAB programs, for example, could be predictive of better health? What if I knew that if people attended 40% of the time in, in an employment program, it's not gonna lead to employment? But I don't have that data. And we're making decisions based on descriptive information, an area that I hope that we can change. Sometimes you can't just change culture, and sometimes you have to be very disruptive. So I think it starts at orientation and ends at succession planning. You people that are here today have great opportunities to invigorate change in your organizations. We talk about diversity and inclusion all the time. I'm sure there's not an orientation that doesn't talk about the fact that we value diversity, we value inclusion. Yet, you know, we found out in our organization that in 2016, during the election process, there were 30 to 40% of our staff who felt isolated because the assumption was that everybody in the room was going to be voting the same way. And I actually once had to get up and interrupt a guest speaker who started to make comments, assuming that everybody in that room had a D next to their name. Now, I'm proud that I do, but I actually work with really people that I value and respect that have an R at the end of their name, or an I at the end of their registration, or doesn't, don't have that registration designation at all. So when we talk about politics, why do I want to turn off 30% of my workforce? And yet, that's an area of culture change that I think that all of us, we were all reminded of how important that was. You know, it's really you know, benign to say that every CEO should speak to every new employee because I hope that that's happening everywhere because the culture starts with us and you have to let new employees. If you don't tell new employees what the culture of the organization is, trust me, they're gonna hear it from their peers and you're not gonna like it. It's like teaching sex, either you're gonna tell your children about sex education or they're gonna learn it on the playground. It's your choice. Um, I got a laugh. I, don't, I was going to count laughs, but that was. Um, so I want to look at sort of the um, outsider, you know, looking what's going on in the industry. Um, I read more business pages than I read industry pages. Okay, I get more ideas, more hints about where, what's happening and that's going to relate to our organization. You know, I'm looking at what industry's doing in terms of what kind of savings they're getting so they, they can provide changes. So one example, I, and I've talked to a, a doctor who headed a physician group, and it was amazing because his pain points were the same as our pain points. How many um, have schedulers somewhere in your organization doing scheduling? You know, okay, so there's a fair amount of people doing scheduling. We have a lot. We have people doing scheduling, and they schedule our nurses, they schedule our BCBAs, they schedule, you know, they schedule um, our direct care workforce, they schedule our relief workforce. We have a lot of people doing scheduling. Well, what if actually the schedule is, you eliminated schedulers and actually put it in end-to-end -end users, kind of like care.com. I mean, if you think of care.com and how we could revolutionize our industry and perhaps put some of us out of business, I imagine that if our families who want to schedule their early intervention therapy appointments could actually do it directly to the therapist on, a, on, a, on a, their iPhone, and you know, you can create, everyone goes, oh, but you don't know what, the therapist only works in Lowell, and then you know, the family might be in, in um, Beverly that day. Well, you know, you know you can create any kind of rule in order to make a program successful. Now, we're not gonna be able to do it individually, but that's where we really need to partner with each other to be able to solve our problems, because we know the state's not our friend, and they're not gonna solve the problem for us. 
generally as a field, we're sort of way behind in this and sort of developing, investing in social outcomes. It's been more, it's, you know, we've seen some of it in prison work where, you know, you, we know we can actually prevent, you know, the recidivism rates. Many of us are working with individuals for whom it's going to be an ongoing need for um, support, and we're very reluctant and very paternal about reducing levels of support, but we, this, this is coming, and this is going to be expected more of not only from our major funders, but it's also some of the newer donors are going to be looking for this kind of outcome opportunity for them. So the thing that, one of the things that keeps me up at night is private equity in autism. But it's not only private equity in autism, it's behavioral health, education, health care, physician practices. I don't think there's an industry that's probably safe from the private equity threat at all. For those of us, for those of you who are in the room who are my age, you know, putting your head around that is like really hard to initially think that private equity is now everywhere in our space. And it's not going away. They smell a dollar. They're going to turn it into five. Anyway, this private equity firm told me that they, it was a $10 million organization that they invested, they were investing $10 million in. That's just a ridiculous amount of money because you know that they need to get $50 million back, at least initially, in order to be able to uh, do what they have promised to their investors. So I'm going to be really brief about that because a private equity firm would you know, identify an organization for a growth opportunity, and they would do it in a number of ways. They would maybe increase the de uh, geographic density. They might increase the service delivery model. They you know, might broaden it. They would um, come in and they'd probably fire a few people maybe a lot of people. They might like the CEO that's there, but they'd probably bring in their own CFO because they're going to be operating under different opportunities. And then they need to exit because the money that they've infused, they need to return to their investors, and investors are not going to wait for 45 years. It's not, a, it's not an IRA. It's like, let's turn this around quickly. There has been over 40 acquisitions in the last two years of autism programs around the country by private equity firms. You know, Massachusetts may be a little different and a little slower because we have a very fond feeling for nonprofits. And other states are not as friendly to non nonprofits. But what's one of the things that's driving the autism area is the fact that we have this incredibly generous insurance benefit for folks with autism. So the private equity guys can think of that. That's an unlimited thing. If, let's say everybody who has a diagnosis of autism can get six hours of ABA services. And so you're th some of us who are in that business are saying, well, how can they do it better than we? We can't find the therapists to do the service. Well, they'll figure out a way to either pay the therapists more um, by doing something like uh, reducing overhead. Now, I had an example where I went, and some of you might want to do this exercise in your head. I went and met with our early intervention team and I came back and I said to the director of the early intervention team, I met with the team who were actually going into the family's homes. And I said, are there really seven layers between me and the team that I just met with? And she said, no, there are eight. Okay. So do that exercise in some of, your, some of you who have larger programs. That's unacceptable. It's absolutely ridiculous. But you know, when you talk to the staff to say, how can you flatten it? They don't, have the, they don't have the answers. And sometimes it's going to take really bold leadership on our part. And you know, we did. We, took a very, we made a very difficult decision. We had to eliminate some very long-term, very valuable employees who were just layers. And you know what happened when we did that? And you know what? It was difficult. It was painful. There was a lot of history, a lot of years of longevity. The next layer of people who were now exposed to the opportunity to make decisions 
they already had the plans to move us forward in their draws. It was as if we had let, you know, we had released people from the layers of bureaucracy that we had created. I mean, we talk about the federal government with bureaucracy. We had it right here in our own organization. I had an encounter with a, um, the uh, manager of a very large consulting accounting firm, not AAF, who said to me, met me at a social event and said, why are there so many organizations like you doing the same thing? And I said, because as long as the business community and the philanthropic community is willing to donate to all of us, you've created no incentive for us to do otherwise. And he said, oh my god, you're the first CEO that actually was honest and admitted that there were too many, you know, that there was duplication. And there is duplication. It's, it's to our right, towards our left, it's all around. I was recently invited by um, a bank that wants our business to come to a nice dinner. The bank president was coming into town. It's a big, big, huge bank. And would I want to come to dinner and meet the president? And he was inviting other uh, CEOs of nonprofits. And I said, no. <laughs> I don't need to. I don't, with all due respect, because I love you all, you know, I don't need to be with other CEOs in my limited evening time that takes away from my family and my work to be with other CEOs. But had he invited me to a dinner where I could have met CEOs across industries, among them being the human service world, in the nonprofit world, that would have been an attractive invitation. And he goes, well, that's the kind of feedback that we're, we were looking for to get by having this dinner, so I guess you don't need to come to the dinner. And not two weeks later, he invited me to a basketball game. And I said, who's going to be there? And there was like the same group of people. So obviously, he didn't get the, the message. Um, so think about who, who you spend time with. And I'm going to ask you this provocative question. Are you sitting at a table with someone you know? If you're not sitting next to somebody new, you have lost an opportunity to learn something new. And I want to tell you, I learned this as a very young professional. I was out of state. I, I, I was very lucky, very young, to have the opportunity to be um, on the board and then the president of the National Down Syndrome Congress. And I went to a, a lunch, and there was maybe 55 people. And I didn't know anybody except one person. And I said to her, I said, Deanna, would you sit with me at lunch? And she said, no. <laughs> I was like, she goes, I never sit with people I know. And you know what? It was, a, a jar, I felt a little intimidated, took the cue, and I got to have an incredible meal with um, uh, Ted, Ted Jr., Ted Kennedy Jr., was among the table, and learned much about the way he was able to question all of us around the room about what we were passionate and interested about. And by being with him, I learned a skill that I've been able to use going forward. We can deepen our relationships. I, we once sent a group of our staff to a, an event, and I got there. We had to pay. You know, so I'm, I'm the CEO. I'm thinking you know, it's how much money we paid, $20 per person to be there. And then the four of them were together. Well, there was no point. So we actually found that it was really difficult for people to even sometimes have that opportunity to meet new people. So we brought in an outside trainer to work with our entire management team of how it is that you break the ice in an, op in an environment. So some of our pain points, um, the workforce is a really painful thing. And uh, you know, it occurred to me, why aren't we, you know, we're talking about lowering the um, driving age, uh, the voting age, the voting age, the little debate. Should we lower it? Should we hire it? Why do we have an arbitrary age of when we hire people that the state or federal government doesn't impose on us? I can't find the answer to it. You know, I know plenty of 25-year-olds that I would never hire. 
but there are plenty of 16-year-olds or 17-year-olds that I would hire. So like a person who might be in a dating pool, if you only limit yourself to people who are between 40 and 50, you're going to have a much smaller pool than if you say, I'm interested in dating people between 30 and 60. So if we have the opportunity to, you know, we just talk about how bad the, the workforce issue is, but we don't do some of the simple things that we can do. By not lowering the age of which we're open to considering candidates, we're knowing that those 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids are going to go on and find another job, and we're never going to get them when they're 21 or 22. But, you know, we might be able to get them at an early age, and then we have summer, you know, they can help us with our summer and relief work or whatever other interim kind of work we want to do. So I was reading the business page recently. We're always talking about how can we have employee benefits for our folks, right? We don't have the money to do it, right? So we're very limited to what we're able to offer. So there's a new company in town called Gratify, where they've consolidated student loans. And they've gone out because of the amount of money they have, and they've been able to then be able to negotiate a lower rate. Cost agencies nothing. How many of you are providing that service to your employees? It's open enrollment. Anybody has July 1st open enrollment, this is the time to do it. Look at Gratify. There may be others out there, but you can provide opportunities that don't cost anything. You know what? What about pet insurance? How many of you offer pet insurance? Okay, okay. a few of you. Good. We talk about, you know, that we can't increase wages because we're worried about wage compression and so that it's not just getting people to the minimum wage, it's then what do we do for the people, for their supervisors? Is this something that you have a conversation with in your organization about increasing wages and the, is wage compression something people understand? Okay. When I talk to people in business, they say, F wage compression. That's what they say to me. Who cares? You have to start somewhere, and as we heard before, sometimes you have to take a bite, and sometimes you need to just do something rather than do nothing, because if we're going to wait until we get the money to solve the $15 wage issue plus wage compression, and then what it's going to do for our professional staff as well, we're not going to do anything. But we, what we need to do is communicate what, that we are wanting to do something with our staff. If we ever shared our business strategy, our organizational charts, with a business, and that's why it's really helpful to have really good diversified board members who are going to help you with that. They would, um, you know, they would be very troubled by it. We also found that across the board, how many people do across the board way, um, salary increases? You know, that is percentage, so like 3% across the board. Okay, that's great, because that rewards the people who are making the most money, but it doesn't, all it does is further the gap between the people who make the least amount of money and the people who make the most amount of money. We did something interesting this year. We know that we will have a certain amount of money at the end of the year that we can decide that we can either distribute to in salary increases, we could do a one-time salary adjustment. There's numbers of ways that we could do it. Whatever we do, the executive team would get um, criticized for because we, there was no way that we were going to make everyone happy. So we decided that we weren't going to make the decision, and we handed the decision off to the division directors. So there's like 14 of them. Here's the amount of money you make the decision. You tell us how it is we should structure that amount of money. They're not having an easy time with it. But they're going to be the people that are going to change the culture because they're going to be the ones to be able to go to their staffs and say, I made the decision. It was our decision. It wasn't those people that made the decision. So another way that we're trying to create disruption um, in the organization. Transportation programs, another pain point for some of us. Some of our transportation is one-off. And it occurs to me, the American Cancer Society has developed this incredible volunteer program of one-off transportation rides. Yet we don't even think of it. They've vetted people. We know how to vet volunteers. So I'm always trying to look at the opportunities that other organizations and other folks um, leave us. 
I'm really big on noticing trends and whether or not we are going to be responding to them quickly or we're going to be reacting to them. So those of us who are in the DDS world, the disability world, it took external people to tell us to close sheltered workshops. We didn't, as an industry, take that leadership role ourselves. We were forced by the state and federal government to do that. I think that um, would be an interesting case study of why we, who think we're the innovators and disruptors, or hopefully, weren't able to take that cue. Cross-discipline teams, you know, we are solving problems really in silos within our organizations. And the creation of cross-discipline teams, I mean, what does the day program and the residential program and the nursing program, the early intervention program, coming together, the admin team, the development team, bringing people from cross areas to, set, to solve a problem. That's what NASA does. I mean, that's what the, the, you know, big creative innovative programs and colleges are actually teaching students about cross-disciplinary teams. They're putting, you know, the math geek with the humanities person, you know, with the English major with the, you know, astrophysics person, and they're coming together to solve a problem. And that's something that I would encourage all of you to be able to do as well. The role of philanthropy is changing. You, you heard a little bit about it in the introduction. You know, we got a, a million dollars from a donor. Everybody say, that's wonderful. You know what our staff wanted? They wanted raises with the money. And so in fact, it came back to bite us a little bit because all they heard was the wonderful announcement about getting a million dollars, but that's not what the donor wanted. The donor wanted to make an impact, you know, and there was a legal agreement between us and the donor about what we were going to have to provide in measurables and deliverables in order to make the donor happy. Most of us are still looking at it the wrong way. We're looking at grants and we're looking at donors to say, how can we figure out for them to pay what we're already doing? You're doing that because not, we're not efficient and effective enough. You need to ask them what they want and then create the opportunity. And I would ask you to think to yourself, if you had $10,000 or $20,000 or a million dollars, would you invest in your organization? Knowing how it's using its money? Knowing how it's dealing with innovation? So we came up with, uh, you heard about the ARC tank. So our donor, you know, we sat with our donor, our board was happy that we decided that we were going to give the money away. Now that's a provocative, provocative response. But we were going to do a competition called the ARC tank and uh, we did it in conjunction with the Kennedy Library Foundation because we wanted to piggyback on something that had a greater name recognition than we did. And John and the president had um, challenged us all for a moonshot. And every time you think of a big, huge idea, what do people often say, well, that's a moonshot. We were trying to create the moonshot in disability. Um, we also wanted to piggyback on the fact that the Kennedy family's long interest in disability was something. And we wanted to have a great event space, too. The first year, we gave out $200,000. The second year, we gave out $200,000. And guess what happened the third year, which is coming up on November 19th? People wanted to give us more money. They liked what we did. So this year, the Nancy Lurie Marks Foundation has joined with us, the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation, and the State of Connecticut, the Developmental Disabilities Council has joined. So instead of $200,000, it's $300,000. Early money makes yeast, as they Emily List call. We were able to get a lot, you know, get a lot of you know support for it. Um, we have built a huge coalition of business partners, publications, foundations, people who come to the event. You might not have a million dollars, but I bet you can find five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars within your organization 
to give somebody the opportunity for creative ideas. So we have an expert panel of judges who each one of them are returning for the third year. And by asking these individuals, we're deepening their commitment to this innovation space. And if you don't know who these people are, the person on the far left is uh, Matt Millett, who's a Special Olympic athlete and probably the best judge because he actually reads all the materials and comes prepared to each of the, for the contestants' questions. Uh, Mary Lou Sutter, as you all know from last year. Quincy Miller, the um, CEO of Eastern Bank. Matthew Kennedy, um, wanting to engage the next generation of Kennedy members of the family. That's Joe Kennedy's twin brother, their fraternal twins. And Shirley Luong from the Boston Globe, who has two sons with autism. And she and Mary Lou Sutter actually don't, didn't agree sometimes. But we were able to, we've been able to fund things like virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and some softer kinds of things like swimming lessons. The reputational value that we've received from it has been amazing. The service value to people cannot be underestimated. And it ha we have been, we've been allowed us to stand out in a crowded field. But every um, project that has been funded will actually some way impact the people we support and the people you support. We have a coffee shop called uh, Breaking Grounds. It's in downtown PB, 67 Main Street. Help us, because we're not breaking even, are we, Cindy? No. So we're trying. But um, it's been an op but, but more importantly, it's why we fundraise. And tonight we're having a gala where we hope to raise $600,000. We have 550 people coming tonight to the uh, Seaport Hotel. We've already got $550,000 committed. We, we could actually approach $700,000. We use that money to do the kinds of things to help us with our mission. But this, this coffee shop came around in a unique way. The city of Peabody did a needs assessment. Their people from Peabody said they wanted a coffee shop downtown Peabody where people could gather. We answered the RFP. But it made us change the way we think. We no longer go to communities and say, this is what we need from you. You need to do this for us because of the things that we do. We go to the communities and think about what do the communities need and how can we make it fit our mission? So how can a coffee shop fit our mission? We've trained and placed 20 people in competitive jobs who have been trained at the coffee shop. They don't work there forever, which is they like it, they would like to, and their families would like them to stay there forever, but that's not the intention. The intention is to move them out. Well, now I have a donor that went to the coffee shop, and he says, I'm willing to pay for a soft-serve machine. The donor wants a soft-serve machine. He likes soft-serve. He's willing to do the electrical. He's doing, willing to do the plumbing. He's willing, okay, he's going to get a soft-serve machine because it's gonna, nobody else on Main Street in Peabody sells ice cream. The mayor has all his departments have their small meetings at the coffee shop. We have all our meetings in the coffee shop. We don't give Dunkin' Donut gift cards out to people. We give Breaking Grounds gift cards to people. The other innovation that we did was the city of Peabody again came to us. The city wanted a black box theater, and they came to us and said, OK. The space for the theater was in a building that we owned that we were having. We run an art program. And so with the city's um, blessing and support, we said, OK, we will take um, up the opportunity, and we'll create um, We'll build this space up. We have now pretty much successfully rounded out the campaign where we've raised $600,000 from new donors. We said we would do this if it didn't tap into our existing donor base. And the city has been, a, and it's an event space. It's a place for our folks with autism who we have a theater-based program. Uh, and then, you, again, it was something that the city need, and we met, met that with the city. We're going to see more mergers. We're going to see more partnerships. We're going to see closures of organizations. We're going to see fewer organizations. We're going to see more private pay. We're going to see more third-party reimbursement, more government oversight. We're going to see more family as caregivers. Finally, I want to leave you with one thing. Um, I have a donor, and he keeps saying to me, what's the next great idea? And I don't have it. So I'm hoping that, that you have it. If all the people around you are happy with you, you're probably not doing great work. <laughs>
Sergeant Shriver, when he led the Peace Corps, had on his door, he said, bring me only bad news, good news weakens me. When someone comes, comes with you with a new idea, start with yes. If we could all just start, everybody comes in, whether or not it's your child, start with yes, and we need to move away with what we normally do. So thank you very much, and there's some time for questions.